right, welcome to the In My Beach Boys Room podcast. I am Adam Schreiner here with Matthew Hart, the Beach Boys expert. I am just a regular Beach Boys fan learning all about the Beach Boys from Matthew here. So, and today we are in the 19, late 1960s room. Yes. And behind us, we are in the Pet Sounds corner because this is the Pet Sounds episode. So for our YouTube watchers, we got some cool memorabilia behind us. And if you want to follow us on Instagram, you can follow us at Matthew Hearts Music or Twitter, Matthew underscore Hearts. We have a Patreon page, and you can just search In My Beach Boys Room and find us there if you want to support the podcast. We appreciate you listening, and we absolutely appreciate any support that we get from you on Patreon as well. Okay, so Matthew and his family did some cool YouTube videos. So if you only listen and you don't watch the YouTube podcast stuff, you should hop onto the YouTube channel, which is just Matthew Hart's, and check Actually, out- Actually, is it Matthew Hart's music is what- Matthew that... Hart's music. Thank you. Yes. Wow. Look at me missing things. The uh, But there's this really cool, they did some cool covers. They did California Girls, and then they did a violin. We for, did four violins on In My Room. Yeah, you know, and, and it's beautiful. And it's, um, yeah, with his, his wife and stepsons, uh, stepsons yeah. and uh, one of your students. Yes. Yeah, mm-hmm. Sam, and he was, he was awesome. And they all, oh, it's so good. It's so good. So if you don't check out, which we understand if you don't want to watch a podcast on YouTube, but you should definitely check out these covers because they're really cool. And as a Beach Boy fan, you'll really appreciate them. So hop on over to the YouTube channel and check those out. And let's get into this episode here. So we're going to talk about Pet Sounds. And as far as what I know of Pet Sounds, Pet Sounds is known as one of the best albums of all time, or at least up there in the top five, always up there in the top best albums. On list. You on see, list. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So. So why, what's going, what, how is, what, what's going on here? Explain this to me here. Well, I've always loved the Elvis, uh, Elvis Costello quote from the Endless Harmony uh, documentary. And the quote is, it's after it was dumb and goofy and before it got weird and spooky. Okay. Which is a pretty simplistic distillation of of what pet sounds is, is yeah is going, what's going on there but i get it i get it um it was kind of the sweet spot of brian's art and it, the way it intersected the pop music community and just the right thing at the right time and i think what really makes it amazing is it's definitely brian's one of his highest works for sure. You know, some people would say the highest. I think he had several high periods, you know. Um, but this is the best, among the best music he ever made for sure. Okay. And very special chord progressions and the way the melodies are laid out against those progressions, all of the arrangements. Uh, it's It's really fantastic art. Then you pair that with the fact that he brought in a new lyricist, and we'll talk about him later, but the reason he brought him in is he wanted to write a different type of an album. He didn't want... He made a a real deliberate move at getting away from the surf and From what he was, what he had been doing. He already had been doing that in a way, but he was just really kind of ready to get a divorce. Oh, okay. You know. Just done with it. Yeah. that, That guy really wasn't him. He was writing about it, you mm-hmm. know, putting his, you know, and, 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 you know, it's, it's amazing how, how much of that he was able to tap into without being a surfer, a car guy, right, you know, and, right. And tap into those emotions and be able to. So Pet sounds more of a reflection of like Brian, you, you would say. Well, like, yeah, it's yeah. A, he knew that he wanted to do something lyrically completely different and it's a very honest record. It's okay. it, people say it's Brian burying his soul and I would definitely agree. It's, it's, it's an autobiographical album pretty much, you know, and Brian's feelings and Brian's insecurities that reflect all of the insecurities that all of us have, uh, especially insecurities and fears about relationships and hopes and dreams and all the, all that, that kind of stuff. Okay. So we have Brian Wilson producing art, his art at the highest level mixed with him also just burying his 
soul fully into this album. Yeah, so. making himself vulnerable through the the lyrical content that he brought in Tony Asher, okay, the, okay. the new lyricist for. But even before that, in 65, he heard the Beatles' Rubber Soul. He was really, he was impressed about how that album seemed to be full of great songs held together. And he wanted to do something like that. He okay. told his wife, Marilyn, at the time, he said, I'm going to make the best rock album ever made. Oh, wow. So he kind of put pressure on himself. But um, also ended up doing it, which is kind of crazy. Yeah. <laughs> but, but that is a lot of pressure to kind of put on yourself. Yeah. And one difference about Pet Sounds is the time that he finally had to develop his musical ideas. Yeah, compared to like the previous years, right? Yeah. The frantic pace of sure. 62 to 65. You know, that he had from the end of or when they quit Summer Days and Summer Nights was released about a year earlier than Pet Sound. So mm -hmm. there was there's the party album in there also, but that was kind of a stopgap thing to right, right. buy time for Pet Sounds. But he Get finally capital off his back, right? Yeah. And so he had the time to develop these feels. He talks a lot about writing the Pet Sounds tunes from feels, the smile, you know, but he always kind of did that, found a little thing. Ooh, there's a good hook, you know, that can get the like like song. How, how, how it, yeah, how, it yeah, that, yeah, how play, that music actually feels. Sit, I know exactly what he's, you know, to sit and play like a couple of chords together or a progression and kind of just work with it and just let it, you know, just like, you know, immerse yourself in it for a while and let it take you where it goes. Okay. That's, that's what, you know, talking about composing from feels and letting just just ideas just naturally develop and go cool. in, you know. So anyway. No, that's really cool, actually. He was composing in this manner, but now he had the time to really not rush it too much. And it's, wow, the, the album really reflects that. That and fact the, that he was able the to. The dimension, yeah. all of the complexity and the musical arrangements, but just all of all of the the different arrangements and production ideas. I mean, you know, you could tell he finally had a little had, pet project to take yeah, some time with. Time to really mm -hmm. let it develop as he wanted it to, right? Right, right. And then, you know, this album, very different because we're bringing in Tony Asher, okay. the lyricist. And the I'm not sure when he, when he hired Tony to do the job. I know that he had... Capital was on his back and wanted an album and he felt like it were it was overdue and I know the Beach Boys were on tour in Japan around some of this time but I'm not sure of what the exact timeline is but anyway he met Tony Asher through a mutual friend named Lawrence Schwartz and he uh Tony Asher worked at an advertising agency as a jingle writer okay and after just this chance meeting where Brian just heard him play a little bit of music, which to Tony thought nothing of other than cool. I got to meet Brian Wilson. Mm -hmm. um, he got a call at work and it, at first he didn't believe it and then got on the phone and sure enough, it was him. And, wow. he, and he ended up getting a leave of absence from work to go start working with Brian on pet sounds. And uh, he was famous. Some of the earliest stuff I read about it, he was famously a little bit frustrated with Brian's uh, work schedule and habits. You know, he'd show up in the morning ready to work and have to put up with waiting for Brian to get out of bed and watch TV and, oh, and eat breakfast. And okay. then they'd get it, you know, kind of some of that <laughs> stuff. So, yeah, but, but not to go too far down that road, but this the album has such a different f flavor because of Tony Asher and Brian telling him that he wanted him to wanted the album to be different. different he didn't want right. it to be, but surfing cars it didn't, you know, he never was that dude, you know, he wanted to be more like, you know, just regular things that people go through. Young people go through. It's about relationships. It's, it's really, you know, it's, it, they talked about a lot of that. You know, they'd start each songwriting session or when he- Him and they, Tony? Yeah, they'd okay. just talk a lot a lot about all of these things that- Topics that they like- Yeah, the relationships sure. and, and all this stuff. And then the ideas would develop into songs. And generally what they, in a lot of, a lot of cases, Brian already had the music um, written and sometimes recorded. So Tony had the 
really cool um, advantage of being able to take the music home with him and listen and kind of finish the lyrics at home after he and Brian had talked about what they wanted the idea of the song to be. So it was really, you know, it was, for the time, especially, it was a pretty cool artful way to go about doing this project. Sure. Yeah, you know? absolutely. So that's, I mean, that's the, that's, that's the different process process as opposed to <clears throat> having to crank out album after album. He actually got to sit and kind of massage this one a little bit. And yeah. Like, with a new guy who's yeah, coming from yeah, a new place totally. and going to stimulate just, and he's uh, Tony Asher is also a very capable musician and he actually had a hand in writing some of the music of the tunes. I think I, if I'm, I've seen, where he said he wrote some of uh, I Just Wasn't Made for These Times, but not just the lyrically. The guy had a hand in a little bit more of it. So, and so are the Beach Boys, where the, where's the rest of the Beach Boys right? They're in Japan, is that what you said? Yeah, they're on tour in Japan when the tracks are being made. And so most of the tracks are being made by the group of musicians everyone likes to call the Wrecking Crew for okay, the yeah, most yeah. part. Yeah, yeah. Um, and they came back from that tour to most of the album being made with the exception of I, I, that's not me, which the beach boys are playing on. And I don't know if there's anything else, but most of the rest of it was ready to go. And, uh, they were just blown away by the tracks. I mean, it was a whole different, a whole different ball thing. game. Man. Blown away in a good way. Oh, I, I really, I think in, in a good way. Musically, um, lyrically, and thematically, some of them were a little bit worried about the direction sure, because so now different. this is mm-hmm. so different, right? Okay, yeah. And then so they come back and the tracks are the, done the, and the, ready the, for the them music to sing. Part. Okay, right, 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 right. Now the other cool thing about this, and if listeners need to, if they haven't already heard it, go seek out the Pet Sounds box set. Because it isolates a lot of the vocal sessions. You know, actually, there's a vocals only uh, version of the album on there, plus all the instruments without the vocals on it and incredible other things. But it really, I had no idea until that box set came out of some of the intricate things you don't even hear on that are buried. That are buried. Wow. Some really intricate vocal things that he had. Uh, composed and arranged for the record. And I just, I just think of, you know, him having to teach them that all of those guys had to teach them the parts and then get them to sing it that well, that quickly, you know, and, and yeah. to learn that kind of, you know, <laughs> it's just pretty dang amazing. And, and uh, so that's what the beach boys came back to was these great tracks. And then they had to, he was a taskmaster, a taskmaster on the, on the vocal sessions famously at this point too, of wanting everything to be just, just perfect. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so is Tony Asher around while they're doing this? Yes. And As so a matter, is, yeah. Okay. And because Brian met Tony through Lauren Schwartz, we're going to talk about this a little bit because unfortunately or not, unfortunately the way you look at it, you know, marijuana and, and LSD come into the picture, you know, in 1965 in Brian's life. Mm-hmm. And it, it can't, we have to talk about it a little bit here because it definitely did influence the creativity that, that happened here. Okay. Um, um, these were a new group of people that Brian was hanging out and that were introducing him to these things. And Mike in particular wasn't too fond of some of these new friends and okay. some of the other guys were also kind of, you know, standoffish. Hey, what's, what's going on here? Who are these new guys? Who's this new guy writing the words? What's he doing hanging around? And that actually, I think there were some offensive things said during a session. Tony was at probably by, I think by Mike and, and he says, you know, but I was like, why do I need to be here? You know? Yeah. Um, but you know, that came from a place Mike is, in 65, he was doing a lot of writing with Brian and mm-hmm. had been during the early years too, off and on with other collaborators. So, you'd have, you know, but this is the first, I think really the first time Brian made that statement, not making it, Hey, I'm going to bring in somebody and do something completely different. Right. Right. And so that had to be on a ego level. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so <of> ego. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So the, uh, um, Mike might've already kind of, 
had a bad taste in his mouth, right? Even without even maybe even interacting with Tony Asher, maybe. Right, right. But it's it it definitely Tony represent. He was a target, right? When they can't, you know, for the new direction and mm-hmm. and all of this stuff and. Uh, I don't think it was real comfortable. Well, I know it wasn't really comfortable. He talks about it. Tony Asher does at that time. And he's been able to kind of get over some of that in the years since then, just because Pet Sounds has become such a great success story. Right, right. Yeah. And so they come, so they come back, they lay down the vocal tracks, Mm -hmm. which he said were crazy, different, complex. And so then... Let's talk about some of the tracks then. So then, well, yeah, well, and I'll tell you, one funny thing is uh, one of the engineers that I think worked at either Western or Capital. They talked about Brian taking all this time to make this album, the instrumental tracks, and then taking all the time with the vocals and everything, and then he went in and mixed it in like one day, just like speed mixed it. Oh, really? Kind of, almost. Yeah, that's a famous story about and there's some talking in the so he, in here today. There's a couple of there's some let's just say there's some dirty spots on the album where there's you can hear some talking and where there shouldn't be, you know, and everything. Oh, really? And, yeah, but where but I mean, I always think he intended to leave that some of that stuff in there. Sure. So he was always thinking ahead of the game anyway, you know, but he So he was really really uh you uh, tuned in to how how they recorded these vocals, but then when he went to mix it, he just cranked it out. Is well, that- it seemed like to the other musicians, I think it was Steve Douglas that was saying this, his, the sax player from the Wrecking Crew that did a lot of the contract work with Brian too. And he said, yeah, it took all this time to make this masterpiece and then just runs in and, and, and masters it in one day. Just all, you know, just kind of. Well, I mean, maybe if you, that's, yeah. It kind of makes sense. You take all the time to get the takes right, and then mixing's a little easier. Who do, you know? There's a lot. There's <laughs> well, there's there's so many different avenues we can go down there with the whole mixing thing and Brian doing everything in mono at that point and stuff, and how much he really expected people to hear, and how much was it really implied? You know, right, right. It's crazy things like that. Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah I do want to talk about the because, tunes. I mean, we're talking about. But arguably one of the greatest albums of all time. So let's right, let's, right. let's talk about some of these tracks here. Well, can't let me go on forever about okay, all I'll try, of them. I'll but try I think to, what I'll we're going to do is just down a little bit. We're going to you know let's go through them one by one. Wouldn't it be nice? I think is probably the most perfect pop song ever. Yeah. And uh, you have a cool that at the beginning of this podcast. Uh, that's Matthews. Uh, he did all the. We did the stand up well, we, bass, the couple guitar, guitars, couple and violin. guitars and a violin. Yeah. That's and. Uh, that's on YouTube as well. You can check out. Anyway, um, wanted to be nice. Yeah. So, I mean, just even from the opening, one of the most ridiculous things I've seen on the internet recently is some guy said, I want to kill that ice cream, the ice cream guy at the beginning of Wouldn't It Be Nice? Because there's that dude. This guy sounds, it sounds like an ice cream truck. And to me, He's like saying that takes away from the song. And I'm like going, no, that's like this that's, little that's dream the, sequence yeah, right? that you get this great big snare drum at the end of. And all of a sudden it just explodes into this tune. And then to find out that when I finally heard Stack of Tracks was the first time that I figured out that that same riff from the intro is recycled into that crazy bridge. And I just about, oh, <laughs> my God, you know. What an amazing tune. And the singing on that is the, there's some counterpoint harmony on that. And Mike, Mike's bass part has some counterpoint in it that I just love, which I think Brian talks about doing stuff based on Bach in Pet Sounds. Okay. And oh, there's okay. some of that. There's some counterpoint stuff in the vocals that I'm sure he's talking about and instrumentally. Um, but oh, I can go on and on about wouldn't it be nice because it's just most days it's my absolute favorite. Yeah, it's I, I mean I, it's up there with me too. But let's let's keep. Yeah. Then we got something. Okay, other well, so and it, really, everybody and talks about that one. You still believe in me? Started life as a song called "In My Childhood." There's a bicycle bell and a horn on the end of the instrumental track that couldn't be taken out when the song was still going to be about that. But Tony Asher wrote new lyrics about it. It's called, you still believe in me. Um, I always, uh, 
David Leaf interviewed Paul McCartney when Pet Sounds was re-released, and he made special mention of of especially uh, the harmonies in the end of You Still Believe in Me. And there's a magical uh, flat six chord in it that that just is really, really nice. I always think of it as a nice pivot point in that, but that's kind of... Music nerd yeah, stuff. Music but. Nerd stuff. Yeah, that, one, that one went over my head. So. Yeah, love that one. Um, That's not me. I love it because this is the Beach Boys playing on Pet Sounds, which most everybody I talk to thinks the Wrecking Crew did all Pet Sounds. Nope, we got Brian on the organ here, Dennis on the drums, Carl on a guitar. There's other people involved too. But they're in Just there. A, they're in there, but it's a very simple sparse production compared to the rest of Pensouts being very dense. This is like just a few in- instruments and curiously it's by the actual beach boy. And so this one, well, obviously they, they recorded this one when they got back. This was part I of I think that, that is right. That, I think that this one is one of the latest pet sounds tunes recorded. Gotcha. Right, okay, right, okay. right. Uh, and great tune, uh, notable, key changes i remember teaching this at a music camp a couple of summers ago and uh one of the other instructors we were just talking about the key changes in this one just being so crazy and sometimes going in a direction that you would never guess but but it's so right it's unbelievable you know yeah uh don't talk in parentheses put your head on my shoulder uh, a Brian solo tune on here. There's no harmonies on here. On the box set, there's a piano demo of just Brian banging out the chords on this one. And you would not, if if you're just a uh, if you're not a musician, it's hard to make the connection that this tune on the that he's playing on the piano demo is the same song as "Don't Talk." But it's one of my favorite things on the box set. And it really illuminates how Brian thinks about chord progressions. And that chord progression in Don't Talk is just spectacular. I mean, just, well, high-level stuff. Yeah. And the string arrangement that he does in Don't Talk is top-shelf stuff, too. It's, you know, writing for the, the there's a little mini orchestra, like a, a couple of violins, violas, and cellos mm-hmm. that are doing a little mini thing in the middle of that uh, and it's just really, really, really nice. Nice. Okay. Don't talk. So what, what do we got next? Okay. Then we come to, I hate to say this, this is my least favorite pet sounds tune. Least favorite pet sounds. Tune. Yeah. What, well, what's this one? Actually, it was, it was written two years earlier too. the copyright on this one is from 1964 and it's a Brian and Mike tune mm-hmm. from that period that for some reason didn't get put on anything, but, and Brian put it on this collection of tunes. It's really notable. What's the, what's the name? It's Oh, excuse me. I, uh, I'm waiting for the day. I'm waiting for the day. Yeah. And most people make note of the percussion. There's some pretty big timpani stuff in the beginning of it. And I do like, there's a great, uh, six string bass part, a little descending line. That's really cool on it. And it's, it's a good, it's a great tune. I, there's something about maybe the stop start of the percussion aspect of it. That that's makes what me not kind of okay. resonate with it so much, it, but, uh, I have to, I, I love sitting and play, playing the guitar with it. The, uh, not too long ago. It's, it's a great tune, okay. you know, just, just not, not up there for you. Yeah. Okay. After that, we've got the the instrumental "Let's Go Away for a While," and then so about a year after this, Brian was quoted. They asked, I guess he was just quoted as saying that this was the most satisfying piece of music he had ever made to that point. And oh. this is after "Good Vibrations" and "Smile." I think is when the when the interview was done, and so he talked about specifically "Let's Go Away for a While," and it is. It is so lush. It's like you're lis- you're watching a mu- movie soundtrack from the 1960s, or watch you're listening to mm-hmm. a music soundtrack from the 19, you know, some uh, apartment in 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 Hollywood, sure, yeah. you know, kind of, you know, uh, and um, it's it's basically it has no melody to it either. It's there's no melody on it. It's a, a series of chord progressions and feels that are kind of stitched together, but it was all done live. But one of my favorite quotes uh, from Brian on this is uh, they said, well, 
what's so special? I guess it was probably when he said it was the most satisfying piece of music he'd ever made. And he said, what's so special about it? He goes, try to hum it. <laughs> and it was kind of insight because there's no melody <laughs> yeah, to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but, um, okay. So and that's, that's – you know, both of the instrumentals on Pet Sounds, I, I encourage people to give those repeated listenings okay. and, and put your headphones on and, and listen to the dark. Yeah, do I really that, yeah. do a lot of visualization, and you'll see a master painter. You know, you, you'll see a, an cool. art. You know, Very that's cool. really what you'll get out of it. Okay, after that, Sloop John B., which we've already talked about when they released it as a single. You know, we talked about it was being cultured in late 1965. That's – that's at the end of side one here on the on the album, and it always gets a lot of flack for being out of place. Like, where's this Sloop John B. in the middle of all these tunes that are, you know, the rest of it seems to be based on a concept, you know, that about a, a, a burgeoning romance between right. young people and then going through all the ups and downs and then getting to the end and where did your long hair, you know, well, what's, where's Sloop John B.? Where's the guy on the ship, you know? Yeah, yeah. And for years it was hypothesized that Capital just insisted that it was included because it had been the hit right before Pet Sounds was released. Oh, okay, okay. Which would have made sense. But then I saw a handwritten list in, I can't remember which book it was, but it's not been too long ago, five, six years ago, it, of, that Brian submitted of the tunes for Pet Sounds and Sloop John B was on the list. Oh, so that shoots that right out. Yeah, of the water, yeah, yeah you know? exactly. No, that was, that I was playing you know, the whole time. It also it's it's like the it's the ending tune on on a side one, and so it's it's and it's kind of a nice break, you know, and kind of almost a little intermission to to and then we, uh, at the very end the the lyric gets twisted to this is the worst trip I've ever been on, and some of I hypothesize if that's not a little drug reference right, there, right, you know. Yeah. And so anyway, there you go with that. And I don't I hope we've talked a little bit so far about the you know, a lot of people consider Pet Sounds to be a concept album. No, yeah, we haven't really talked about that yet. Should I wait and talk about no, that no, after? No, no, we go, go, just we'll drop it in right here. Take, yeah, okay, mean, well it's it's We'll take we'll take our own little intermission here. Yeah. And then we'll get right, back to, the, to side two yeah, after yeah, yeah. this. Okay. I should have mentioned in the beginning that uh that most people consider Pet Sounds to be one of the first concept albums in rock and roll because it it kind of seems to far, follow a, a relationship and the ups and downs and the end of it sort of a thing. Right. And you ask Brian and Tony, they never really had that intention because of the conversations that they were having about the different – things brian was wondering about and all kinds of crazy stuff you know those those songs grew out of those discussions and those those discussions were about relationships and so it kind of just naturally took that sort of a shape they said but you can really say that it does it, you, most people say boy it just sure from wouldn't it be nice everybody's all happy and ready to go to caroline no at the end of wow man it's gone <laughs> yeah, you know yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it it seems to be in there yeah and if it was in there if they were subtly you know this would be a nice little break before you go into side two the opening tune god okay. only knows which okay. of course Paul McCartney has said about that. It's his favorite. It has said multiple times. It's his favorite song, you know, of all time. Wow. Yeah. And he's not the only big dog that's, that has said that, said that, like that. about that is an amazing composition. Uh, from a musical standpoint, it's hard to decide what key that song is in. It's so ambiguous and it shifts three major times. Uh, it's, I <laughs> must have been the marijuana. I don't know. Yeah. I don't so, know so you say how same. how a composer really. Those are such fantastical 
ideas. It's almost like that had you just almost had to let something like that happen and just follow it and and just you know because you couldn't be thinking logic you, you, logically to come up with some of the stuff. Though it is very very music musically logical in the end uh-huh. because his ear was so supreme. Right, right. Um, is so supreme. Uh, but you know, and then you've got Carl's vocal on that, and then it just becomes. You could you could argue that this is the signature tune of their of their career. You know, really? it's, the, a few years ago there was a big thing on the internet where a lot of heavy hitters from the music industry. I wish I knew more about those people, but but they did a pretty famous like cover video of this oh, okay. that was. I need, and it was probably a lot longer than, uh, ago than that. Yeah, but yeah. I remember, yeah, it's just God only knows is 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 up there. I yeah. mean, the fact that you got that tune and wouldn't it be nice on the, on the, on the same, same album, thing? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and with God only knows to yeah the the production on that one with the. Not a, there's accordions on this and wouldn't it be nice? I never knew that till a stack of tracks. I guess I I heard it on God only knows. I never really heard it on wouldn't it be nice until a stack of tracks without the vocals. You know, mm-hmm. you know the, the French horn idea that it, it, there's the way that they're one of the pianos. They put a bunch of masking tape on the on the piano wire so they could get this special piano sound. You know, but all, all that stuff was done. This is pre synthesizers. You know, and so all of these crazy production ideas. Some of these he stole from Phil Spector, but a lot of it was, hey, how do we get the job done? You know, right. you yeah, know, yeah, so yeah. much crazy. Crazy, crazy stuff being done, right? Mm-hmm. So anyway, we can go on. We could wax forever <laughs> on God only knows, right, but we right. got to get to. I know there's an answer, which did not start as I know there's an answer. It like started, that wasn't the name initially. The name was Hang on to your ego. Hang on to your ego. Wow, I, I remember they reference this in my main source of information with Beach Boys in uh, Love and Mercy. He he talks about it. Mike, I remember in that movie being like, is this about drugs or is this mm-hmm. a drug song? Yeah, yeah. Okay, this so is this the, is – I didn't. okay. Yeah, and this is one where Mike had a question about, hey, what are the re- what are these references to? And there was enough contention. I don't know if it was as, as much as there was in Love and Mercy. Right, and a little dramatization. But they, they wrote new lyrics to it and call it, I know there's an answer. It's still the same sort of a – of a message, but just kind of, you know, not so druggy. Well, I don't, yeah, not as it, I don't. Wait, I so, don't. so do you know, they change the lyrics. You do. Does anybody ever, does, do people know what the original lyrics? Oh yeah. Oh, yeah, they're they're, oh I've oh, got okay, the okay. recorder. I have the takes of when they did it as hang on to your ego. Oh, okay. Yeah. It's a great, I love, and, and people have covered it as hang on to oh. your, there's a, there's a guy named Frank Black and I think he's with a group called the Pixies back in the nineties. There's a, like, I think a punk or a new. Oh yeah. Dude. The Pixies, they, they had really? a couple of really famous songs. Okay. Well, anyway, he, he covered hang on to your ego on a, on a solo album oh, of okay. his, I think. And did it as hang on to your ego gotcha. but uh this one is it's a crazy little tune uh, carol k calls it his royal blues and i could it does have a heavy heavy blues aspect to it and some of the movement of the melody and the in the chords and stuff like that um it's a neat tune i like it a lot yeah. um after that here today another great tune that has a great bass line. Uh, I think it's a Fender P bass played way up high. I'm not sure who's playing that part. It's it's a great tune, but this one and I know there's an answer. I have to, you know, they're right in there behind. I'm waiting for the day. Isn't they're not pet soundtracks I listen to all the time. Okay. Um, now after here today though comes i just wouldn't i just wasn't made for these times and uh this one we'll talk about it a little bit later when we talk about my pet sound story but this one is very very special the chord progression the bass lines in it uh brian's message and brian's vocal on it uh just just a magical tune and a magical record for me so we even 
talking about how much I love Wouldn't It Be Nice and God Only, you know, some, day, some days this is my this favorite is song. Wow. Yeah, yeah. This is I, so many neat musical things about it, too. <laughs> Just really, really, really cool. It's another one of those buffets. They're all, all these tunes are buffets for yeah, musicians. Yeah. So then after that, um, I guess actually let me talk a little bit about one of the first bootlegs I got, uh, cons- uh, Pet Sounds, or cons- uh, rela- one of the first bootlegs I got related to Pet Sounds. I found this on the Yellow Dog label. I think I found it in downtown Boise. He's holding a CD that says the Beach Boys, the Pet Sounds Rehearsals. Yes, and this came out in the 90s. It's got some sessions from Wouldn't It Be Nice, a whole bunch from I Just Wasn't Made for These Times, and You You Still Believe in Me, and Then I'm Waiting for the Day. So just four tunes. Um, But the sessions for I Just Wasn't Made for These Times are so – they're really, really cool. There's a harpsichord that's – uh, on on the track that I really love that you can really hear in these sessions and hear him going through the chords he was playing. Uh-huh. But also Glenn Campbell, the famous Glenn Campbell, who had been playing on Beach Boy Records before, he officially became a Beach Boy and toured with them for a few months, like we've talked right. about yeah. in 1965. Well, he's back playing in the sessions on the Beach Boy oh, Records. Okay. And initially on this tune, he was playing a banjo. A uh, five string banjo just strumming it and it's you can hear it uh it's the sessions are on this bootleg have brian going through several takes of it and trying he just does not like that banjo and oh, really? finally yeah he asked and he says he's not getting too many notes or getting the notes he wants and he says do you have a box which means this they always talked about acoustic guitars being box guitars back then. Oh, well, one of my favorite I think it's in one of it's in a Pet Sounds book. It might be in Kingsley Abbott's book. I don't think it is. I love all these books on Pet Sounds. Um but they talk about Brian asking Glenn if he has a Vox. They think he's saying, which is a particular type of amplifier right. or a pedal or something. And I want to go, no, no, no. no he's no, asking him if he's got an acoustic guitar instead of that banjo. Oh, okay. And and then when they, so they do shift, and that's what's there. Glenn is playing banjo on. I know there's an answer. That uh-huh. it's, it's a banjo on Pet Sounds. Oh, okay, but there was originally going to be one on I just wasn't made for these times and they shifted gears and decided to have a guitar instead so that's a kind of a fun little story, little story on that there. one Got it. Okay. Um, after that you have the other instrumental which is this the actual song Pet Sounds and I guess Brian composed this and actually did submit it for a James Bond movie that was being made at the time. And this song had the working title of Run, James, Run. Oh. And I did, so it didn't get, you know, he didn't get that gig for it, but he decided to put it on the album. But you, you guys listen to Pet Sounds now and imagine it rolling over the beginning credits of a James Bond film. Right. And tell me that you aren't looking at that tune in a whole different light. <laughs> You know, and because a lot of people say, where is this? You know, let's go away for a while makes sense because it fits more of the mood of the rest of the album. Mm-hmm. And then Pet Sounds itself is kind of a jarring, um, almost has a uh, a Cuban feel to some of it oh. because of the percussion. It's more of that, I call it that 60s exotica music that, w- you know, that was, it's hard to explain, but it's 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 really cool. It's it's more like you, you, it really is music for like films, right? Right. right. So Scores, have, yeah. if you have those sort of visualizations on these instrumentals, it'll really help you out on that. Then after Pet Sounds, you've got Caroline No, which people have always wondered who Caroline was. Uh, he had a girlfriend, Brian did in high school named Carol Mountain that I think, and people thought that was who the Carol was. And because originally Tony Asher said the lyric was going to be, Oh, Carol, I know. And Tony Asher mistakenly, he heard it as Caroline. No. Oh, and so that's, uh, 
that's that's the tie in with with the Carol from Brian's high school days. But Marilyn always says, I really think that that tune is about me because I had just cut my hair. The song says, where did your long hair go? Where is the girl I used to know? And I'm a lot of the album has to be about Brian's relationship with Marilyn and, and her family. Sure. You know, and that, but that tune is just, just absolutely beautiful. It's uh, another. It was put out as a Brian Wilson solo record. I don't know if we mentioned that. Oh no, we hadn't no, talked no, no, about no. that yet. Yeah, that's when it was released as a single. It was under the name Brian Wilson, not the Beach Boys. Oh, well. and uh, don't know if that was Capital trying to test market Brian as a solo artist or Brian's idea to want to do something on his own, see what would happen. Mm -hmm. But that's just another kind of curious thing about that wonderful tune, but it's still a favorite for a lot of people been covered by so many people. Okay. So, and is that, is that it? Is that, the, that's, that's, that's all the that's tunes. All the, and then the at the very end, we got Louie and banana, Louie and banana. That's Brian's dogs. Oh, really? Yeah. He brings them in and there, you can hear them barking at a train. <laughs> That's going by kind of a, the whole Doppler effect thing, uh -huh. you know, you know, there's a, there's a train that comes by and it, you can, you can hear it go by and Brian brought his dogs in to bark while that was going on. Oh, nice. Don't know where they got the sound of the train, but the funny thing is, is then this, I've found this out way before the box set came out, but there's some funny outtakes from that dog barking session where they asked the engineer, Chuck Brits, they say, Hey, Chuck, is it possible we could bring a horse in here? And I beg your pardon. <laughs> <laughs> Honest to God, the horse is tame and everything. We'll bring his trainer. They were just BSing him. Yeah, yeah. They, they were just seeing how far they could push. Yeah. <laughs> um, so is that pretty much it as far as the, the production of – because I have a question for you, but I want to make sure that – we don't. You know, we covered everything as far as the process. The yeah, tracks. maybe the 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 photo session, which is really cool. They just unearthed uh, footage from San Diego uh, San Diego TV station of them make, uh, shooting the cover for Pet Sounds, which they went down to the San Diego Zoo and shot that cover with the goats on the mm -hmm, front. Mm -hmm. And you know, there's you know the stuff about why is it called Pet Sounds or whose right, idea right. was it? You know, Mike says it was his idea. You know, Brian says it was Carl's idea. Nobody's really gotten to the bottom of it. And then I think just to make matters worse, they went and got pictures of themselves with goats. Yeah. <laughs> It's really mixed things it, up there. Yeah. You talk about different. Yeah. You know, you yeah. go from surfboards and cars and stuff, and then we're all of a sudden, yeah. you know, feeding, feeding the goats. goats. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no kidding. Yeah, right? Thurston Moore of Sonic Youth, I think in the Don Was documentary, he said, he, I remember going in and looking, and what is this? With the <laughs> <laughs> okay, so then what, one thing I want to know is that I, I've heard that it was a bust when it first came out, and now in America, it's, in, uh, okay, in America, but now it's one of the greatest albums of all time. So, how do we go from a bust to this legendary album? Well, it was a bust sales wise, but it was it wasn't a complete bust. I guess it didn't go gold at the time, like all the other Beach, most of the other Beach Boy albums had. Okay, um, so but it's so you're saying it actually did do. Okay, though it did okay, and and the single wouldn't it be nice? Back with God only knows. Did I think wouldn't it be nice? Got to number eight. It oh. went top ten. Okay, so that drove it a little bit, and then so not quite a bust. Just didn't just wasn't as good as what they had right. been doing. They, oh, okay, okay. and and yeah, and then Sloop John B had been released beforehand and had gone to number three, and then yeah, uh, that doesn't seem like a the Carolo Caroline No released under Brian's name. I think went to number thirty two, even like that oh right so there was some there's definitely those those tunes and the initial success that they had i think grew pet sounds some sturdy roots okay to where the legend would always be there you know it's it would be eventually found it would have been you know, you know it just took it, a little a little time right 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 it took it so in England, it was a success. I'm not sure exactly what the album got to in England, but it got pretty high. Mm -hmm. And so it was a success there on a commercial level, but on an artistic 
kind of critically, it was a huge success over there and got a huge endorsements. Bruce Johnston took, uh, I think, a copy before it was released over to London and hung out with uh, Kim Fowley and Keith Moon, Keith Moon of The Who, mm-hmm. and actually played, kind of did a press release for the album over there and some heavy hitters, including John Lennon and Paul McCartney, came to listen to the record. And there's really cool stories about that. But they were just absolutely thrilled and floored by it. Uh, Eric Clapton talks about how he was immediately just impacted by it while he was working with cream. Uh, the Rolling Stones manager at the time, Andrew Lug Oldham, I think is how you say his name. He has in a couple of documentaries, at least one, maybe it's beautiful dreamer. He talks about pet sounds being the closest thing to an adult religious experience he's ever had in his life when he heard it. And he on his, with his own money, and this is the Rolling Stones manager, mm-hmm. he took out a full-page ad in one of the London music magazines at the time telling people how great this album was, that it was the greatest thing he had ever heard. And well, he didn't, why? <laughs> like, like, I mean, just because he had that much passion about it? Or? Yes. Wow. Yes, yes, absolutely. Wow. Yeah, that's that's how... So, so it's it didn't get it wasn't really commercially successful in America, but at that same time it was having that sort of impact, right, which cemented on, it totally. Okay, cemented and it. It was just going to try. It commercially, dec- it finally got it caught up over time. A lot of people were going to have to catch up to Pet Sounds, and that's and that's kind of what happened. Uh, you know, through. The seventies and the eighties, you know, when I started reading books about the Beach Boys in the late seventies, I remember, you know, that's, you know, just reading about it was a little bit of loot. Not too many people knew a whole bunch about pet sounds on a wide level at that point, you know. So it's it's a strange scene now to to think that you know of what esteem it's held in now to see what a little thing it went through, you know. Totally now. In the early 90s, when I was in college, the word got out. This is People have to put this into context. This is when CDs were first getting going. Ooh, and big deal. groups were releasing their catalogs, you know, starting to dribble out their, you know, their mm-hmm. things that we've been hoping for and hadn't been able to hear. Well, anyway, Pet Sounds was going to be first out of the gate for the Beach Boys. And we knew it for months ahead of time mm-hmm. via the magazine. There was no internet or anything. Right, right. Is, Man, we were, you know, this meant a lot of things. We were going to be able to hear hear pet sounds on a seed, you know, not a scratchy vinyl record. We're going to be able to, we know we're going to be able to hear more of it than we probably have, you mm-hmm. know. So we're excited about that aspect. But we also heard there's going to be bonus tracks on it Ooh. from other, a couple other things that wasn't on the original album that we were in. Man, it was a lot of buildup. But it lived up to it. It really it did. Um, the Doonesbury cartoon. Are you familiar with that? I'm not. Okay, I I barely am, um, and I I should be way more familiar with it. But famously, at that time, he did a real famous uh, cartoon that was about a guy that had AIDS and he was dying, and the one thing that he had the one thing that he had dreamed about his entire life was for the re-release of pet sounds on CD. And it happened before this guy died. This was actually a series of cartoons that wasn't just one. It was like, uh-huh. a, and it was just a really, it's re, it's recreated in several of the books and or reprinted. And it's, it was, it was a big deal in the music world. And for beach boy fans, it was yeah. a big moment. And, I want to say that that moment was probably the biggest in propelling the new interest in pet sounds. There had always been growing interest just in music communities 
you had to be hip enough to know, you know, but, but every once in a while you'd meet somebody and they, you know, they talk about it and you get to discuss it at length, but it just wasn't widely known until kind of this moment where it got re-released. And Mm -hmm. then it's just like, Whoa, man, (laughs) the Katie bar the door, man, there is a lot of people out there that have loved this record and have for a very, very long time. And then you've got it showing up on all these best of, you know, the, the you know, some list the top the best album the best of all I, yeah, time. Yeah, totally. Or no, the I've top three, you know, it it or Sergeant Pepper or you know you you know, they were always jockeying for Right. And it will still show up on most lists, uh-huh. you know, and didn't even go uh gold it, when it was, it was originally released, released yeah, in yeah. nineteen sixty six. And well that's what I want to ask Yeah. I mean that no, that was why I wanted to ask the well, question was because it you know, just initially Capital was not happy with it either. When when Brian took it to play it for him, Mike Love talks about going with him, and and when they played the album for him, the executives were kind of nonplussed. Yeah, they were like, "Where's the hits? Right. Where's 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 Barbara Ann? Where's uh, you know, Surfing U.S. You know, where fools? Yeah, but well, I just think, how do those guys feel <laughs> now? now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Man, you know, yeah. and how does you know to Brian? It was it was heartbreaking for him that. He when it got released and it wasn't successful commercially, it was damaging to him. Yeah, and it caused some of his re- retreat. Nice. Good vibrations saved that for a little while before the whole smile debacle. But, right, but this initial um, resistance to pet sounds or the, not the success he was hoping for for his great masterpiece. It, nobody could appreciate it the way he wanted them to at in the time. Right, right. right. But what a beautiful thing that come in full circle, it was everything. He, exactly. You know, it just now, took a while to took, get there. Yeah, exactly. It took a while to get It wasn't made for there. these times, you know? Mm-hmm. Okay, so one thing that I I notice with this being such a profound album for so many people is I kind of have like, you know, some big dog musicians. They talk about how how and when they discovered Pet Sounds. So I'm curious to you with your musical background, when did you, what's your Pet Sounds story, discovery oh, story? Yeah, mine, like a lot of my Beach Boy things, it's weird. You reminded me of that, of one Tom Petty quote that I love that he says about Pet Sounds. He goes, you know, concerning that, he goes, I just don't think you can write better music than that. I, you can probably write music as good, but it just doesn't get doesn't any get better. better than wow. that. You know, I mean, wow. that's one thing from one guy. Sure. And, but uh, but, I mean, but that's a pretty uh, well-known, respected <laughs> yeah. guy. And so my pet sound story is wild just because of when I was born in 1969 and when I became a Beach Boy fan in the early 70s, just all of this context was all out of whack for me. I didn't, I, I had some family friends that had a compilation album called, I think it was called High Tide, had a picture of a, just a beach with water on the front of it. And it had God only knows on it, but I was so young the only thing I remember is the accordion at the beginning. I didn't know it was it. I just remember that sounds like sand. Hmm. I remember my little mind going, it sounds like sand. sand. And, I, and I knew that it wasn't a song that I was really familiar that I knew it was beautiful, but I was so young. I remember that being my first exposure to anything pet sounds was that, and that, that it sounded like sand. Um, I also got a an import copy of the live in London album. I think it was, it was printed in Holland uh, famously. And I, I need to get that out and show somebody sometime. It should have been here for a prop, but anyway, they do that's that concerts in done in uh, 68 and 69. And they do several of the pet sounds tunes live. And so that's actually where I would have heard, wouldn't it be nice for the first time? God only knows Sloop John B is on there, but I think I knew a little bit about Sloop John B. So that's, I still didn't know anything about pet sounds, but I knew I was digesting my mom's three albums, summer days concert, little do scoop. And then I had gotten endless summer for Christmas. So, I think there was, I know there was another cousin, Kathy Wilkerson, that actually had a copy of Pet Sounds that I saw, but I never heard. So my grandma, when I was 10 years old, bought me my first Beach Boys book. It's the book that was put out in 1976 by John Tobler. And 
I remember reading that and reading about pet sounds and how wonderful it was and how impactful it was and going, oh my gosh, you know, I, I, I wish I could find that. In those days, you could not find copies of anything. The things had not been re-released like or, or anything. No, like and then the Beach Boys actually went through a lawsuit with Capitol Records in the late 60s that led to Capitol kind of uh, penalizing them by kind of deleting the catalog. Oh, wow. And so a lot of the records were out of circulation. Like I, I would look at the back of my albums and they'd have the other ones advertised at the bottom. That's what it would You'd see pictures of them. And you couldn't get yeah, it. I, I, had, I didn't hear the Today album until it was released in the early 90s because I literally could not ever find a copy wow. of it. You know, and so that's, that's – that you talk about – Delayed gratification right, on some of yeah. that stuff. I mean, I waited a long time to hear a lot of Beach Boys things that turned out to be so wonderful, including the bootleg of Wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, so when – about the time I was 10 years old, I went through a little bit of a, of a ACDC kiss uh, rush – all kinds of other different things still was heavy duty into the Beach Boys, but it wasn't until I was a sophomore in high school that I was in, we had moved to Boise and I was up on a record store on Five Mile in Overland and I saw a cassette copy of Pet Sounds. This is before the re-release in the early 90s. This is the late 80s mm -hmm. sometime or maybe mid 80s. And I remember looking at it, thinking, does it have all the songs on it? I looked at it because at that time, Capitol was releasing, re-releasing some old Beach Boy albums, but like changing the title of them and leaving a couple of tunes off of them. So they were bastardized, basically. Oh, you know? interesting. Just to like, so so that they was make more money my first later thing, on or something? Yeah. As a matter of fact, there's some reissued copies of Pet Sounds out there called Wouldn't It Be Nice? You know, they change the type because they figure they'll know the song more. And so that they, but then they actually leave a couple of the songs off the album. It was just weird stuff, right? Capital's and so weird. my first place, well, and I think a lot of people were probably doing some of that crap yeah. too, the record, those record labels. But I looked at it and I'm going, does it have all the tunes? And it did. And I couldn't wait to get home. And I had at that time a, a good friend, Laura Weber, who's now, uh, she is Laura White. She lives back in Nashville. She sent me the the American Band video that Malcolm Leo did in 1985, which was the first time I saw the Tammy footage, which blew my mind. But also in the middle of that is footage of them, the, the Beach Boys riding scooters on the late in Hawaii trip. And in the background is the music from I Just Wasn't Made for These Times. And I had at that point, I hadn't even got the cassette, but I had never heard I just wasn't made for these times before that moment, uh, hearing it on in the background on this documentary. Mm -hmm. And I was just, oh, it was wondrous right. music. And right. I think that that really like I've got to find pets. I've got to, if this if there's stuff like yeah, this, that, on it, right. I've got to find this thing, man. And and so I did accidentally find that cassette. And so. And I went through, man, I've got a good friend, Scott Sumner, who can attest to the the Pet Sounds fixation there when I was a sophomore and a junior in, in high school. Uh -huh. I mean, it just – and even throughout college, I mean, I'd listen to it every day. Yeah. I just could not believe it. But when the re-release of the CD came out, that was – you know, with the extra tracks and more of the story, David Leaf's wonderful – uh, liner notes for not only the Pet Sounds release, but all of the they released the whole catalog after that, starting with the earliest out surf from Safari and on up. And David Leaf, who we'll talk about more, I uh, have a great story. I called him when I was in college and 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 started a a really neat little. Uh, he mailed me a few things, oh, cool. including some bootlegs and some really special things. I want to save that for a later episode, but I got to meet him at a Brian concert in Seattle one time. And then I actually, when I was doing a master class at UCLA a, a few years ago, I, I almost bumped into him. But anyway, he's uh, David Leaf. His writing on the Pet Sound stuff was so good and it gave so much context. And that's also got his interview with Paul McCartney when mm -hmm. it was first re-released. There's a whole, I've got it up here on my shelf. I think behind one of these 
books. Yeah, there it is right there. It's a whole interview with Paul McCartney about pet sounds and oh, cool. how Paul says, you know, I listened to these to pet sounds and Sergeant Pepper. He says, I kind of want to know what everybody's been doing in the interim. Yeah. Has there really been anything any better than this? Right. Yeah. <laughs> wow. So and that's so that and that's pretty much your. Yeah, I mean, it, I mean, yeah, it, I mean, yeah, I mean, I mean, you could probably yeah dig into like you said, listening to it every day and stuff like that. But um, I mean, this is this is the pet sound. So um, I, if there's anything else that you want to? Well, it's just know. it is it is a landmark album. I. These days I don't listen to it every day. I think I got so many listens of it that it's 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 not the first Beach Boy record I'll reach for. Sure. Um but I it just it was definitely a musical education for me to really digest that. I that's that's an understatement. It yeah. was just wild <laughs> yeah. what that did to me when I really digested Pet Sounds when I was about 16. Yeah. Okay, well then I think that'll wrap us up then for this episode. And uh, we thank you guys and gals for listening. And uh, we will see you next time, episode eight, coming in a week. Have a good one.